I just want to uh, begin with a, the announcement that uh, okay, I think I'll talk in order. I begin with an announcement that uh, Intozaki Shanga has been ill, and uh, Cynthia McDonald will replace her. Uh, we have come together here uh, to give voice to the voiceless, the writers held in prisons in many countries for what they have written, some of them for long periods of time, and some under torture. People have asked, why only writers? Why not protest political imprisonment in general? Of course, that's what we hope to do by concentrating on writers. The writer's function is somewhat different in established parliamentary systems than elsewhere. With guarantees of freedom, much writing is regarded as a form of entertainment. But under repressive regimes, the writer and his fellow intellectuals, few though they may be, are inevitably the prime political message bearers among the people. The honest writer under those conditions can hardly put pen to paper without in one way or another evoking the alienation of the people and thus affecting the architecture of power. So in drawing the world's attention to imprisoned writers, we must inevitably help to give tongue to the masses of people whose silence is enforced upon them. Writers, after all, are imprisoned when it is decided that injustice cannot be changed. It would be comforting to be able to lay the whole blame on one type of social system, but tragically few have escaped the temptations of some level of repression, whether they practice capitalism or socialism or profess any of the religious faiths or none. It is probably too much to expect anything better when whole nations, new nations, have been in the process of formation, struggling over vast territories and peoples. But whatever the justifications, we cannot give way to the silencing of writers and with them the people who look to them for information and truth. We must persist in declaring that silence is not the road to any livable future and that the word must be liberated if the planet is to survive. We will read from the uh, letters from prison of uh, 11 writers. Uh, some of them are out of prison at this time, and uh, one or two are dead. Uh, the first reading is by Judy Bloom. There are always surprises. <laughs> My name is Hans Janicek, and I would not let the opportunity pass to speak on behalf of the United Nations Society of Writers on this historic event. 
I mean honored indeed that the United Nations Society of Writers is a joint sponsor tonight of this event. And we are proud to welcome the distinguished guests up here and in the audience this evening. I would also like to say here that this event was mainly organized by Penn. And I want to thank Karen Kennelly, Pamela Pierce, Andrea Gambino, and last but not least, Ellen Lucas, for their great efforts. The society I represent is an association of members of the United Nations, officials, advisors, consultants, and diplomats, who are also writers. We are arranging meetings with our own members, with guest writers, translators, and others from the literary world, and we publish a journal of the writings of our members. If we were presumptuous, we would say we are the pen club of the United Nations, but we are not. Because writing to us is a dream which will probably never come true for most of us. It's a small world. It is a small, it is a small world. I just came back from Paris this morning where I had an opportunity to meet with a man who calls himself a writer who happens to be president of his country. I'm speaking of François Mitterrand, who is known to many of the writers here today personally. And on that occasion, he spoke of the literary dimension of the Declaration of Human Rights and of the inspiration which it provides for the wretched of the earth. He has asked me to greet you. Our meeting here tonight is unique. When I look at the altar, I'm filled with awe and gratitude. The United Nations has never seen a gathering of world leaders of your magnitude. Men and women who have conquered the minds of millions with the power of their pen, who have put history into words, and whose words have made history. Your voices are heard, both on Earth and in the universe. And your words are bringing us together as one family of man. That you should read from those today whose mouths are gagged makes this more than a literary event. It is an act of compassion, of solidarity, of vision, which honors them who cannot speak themselves, which honors you who are speaking on their behalf in their words, and it honors the United Nations. It honors all of us, including those at the United Nations who have become victims of human rights violations themselves, 
there are 117 members of the staff of the organization which are imprisoned, were being tortured, and some of whom face execution. This event tonight reminds us all that at the beginning were the words of human rights. Let us start. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm Larry McMurtry. I'm going to read you the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Excuse me. Okay. I'm going to read you the Universal Declaration of Human Rights adopted and proclaimed by the General Assembly of the United Nations on December 10th, 1948. Preamble. Whereas recognition of the inherent dignity and of the equal and inalienable rights of all members of the human race, human family, is the foundation of freedom, justice, and peace in the world. Whereas disregard and contempt for human rights have resulted in barbarous acts which have outraged the conscience of mankind, and the advent of a world in which human beings shall enjoy freedom of speech and belief and freedom from fear and want has been proclaimed as the highest aspiration of the common people. Whereas it is essential, if man is not to be compelled to have recourse as a last resort to rebellion against tyranny and oppression, that human rights should be protected by the rule of law. Whereas it is essential to promote the development of friendly relations between nations. Whereas the peoples of the United Nations have in the Charter reaffirmed their faith in fundamental human rights, in the dignity and worth of the human person, and in the equal rights of men and women, and have determined to promote social progress and better standards of life and larger freedom. Whereas member states have pledged themselves to achieve, in cooperation with the United Nations, the promotion of universal respect for and observance of human rights and fundamental freedoms, whereas a common understanding of these rights and freedoms is of the greatest importance for the full realization of this pledge. Now, therefore, the General Assembly proclaims this universal declaration of human rights as a common standard of achievement for all peoples and all nations, to the end that every individual and every organ of society keeping this declaration constantly in mind, shall strive by teaching and education to promote respect for these rights and freedoms, and by progressive measures, national and international, to secure their universal and effective recognition and observance, both among the peoples of member states themselves and among the peoples of territories under their jurisdiction. Article 1. All human beings are born free and equal in dignity and rights. They are endowed with reason and conscience and should act toward one another in a spirit of brotherhood. Article 3. Everyone has the right to life, 
liberty, and security of person. No one shall be subjected to torture or to cruel, inhuman, or degrading treatment or punishment. No one shall be subjected to arbitrary arrest, detention, or exile. Everyone has the right to freedom of thought, conscience, and religion. This right includes freedom to change his religion or belief, and freedom either alone or in community with others, and in public or private, to manifest his religion or belief in teaching, practice, worship, and observation. Everyone has the right to freedom of opinion and expression. This right includes freedom to hold opinions without interference and to seek, receive, and impart information and ideas through any media and regardless of frontiers. Everyone has the right freely to participate in the cultural life of the community, to enjoy the arts, and to share in scientific advancement and its benefits. Everyone has the right to the protection of the moral and material interest resulting from any scientific, literary, or artistic production of which she is the author. I'm Susan Sontag, and as as yeah, okay, right, all right. As president of Penn, I have the a privilege of of uh, coming at the beginning of this meeting, as as well as uh, being one of the readers. Instead of making some general remarks about the great ideas that we all subscribe to, otherwise we wouldn't be here. I thought I might do something different. I have the privilege of doing something different, which is to give you some writer's language. Uh, the, the Declaration of Human Rights that we've just heard that Larry McMurtry read very well uh, is not a writer's language. It's an abstract language. Uh, and we're going to be hearing the voices of writers who have been in prison in the past 40 years, the course of the main part of the, of the evening, the readings. Uh, this is a text which, which I was given this morning, uh, which I'm making public, able to make public for the first time, because it was only written five days ago. And here's the voice of a wonderful writer writing in a writer's way. That is too complicated too many qualifications, too many adjectives, too many turns of thought, and saying, talking about human rights as writers talk about it in a very concrete way. It's a letter that the Czech writer Václav Havel wrote on December 2nd, five days ago, to Francois Mitterrand, whose name was just mentioned here, on the occasion of the forthcoming uh, visit of President Mitterrand to Czechoslovakia. I'm just going to read a, a few excerpts from it, although it, it's only about two and a half pages long. Here's how a writer writes. Uh, you will hear in the excerpts that I've chosen, of course, some reference to the situation, obviously, in Czechoslovakia in particular, although uh, that is a situation that should indeed uh, concern us. 
uh, because Czechoslovakia is is a country uh, whose literature is familiar in particular to many to many of us. So it's very very real to us and what writers there are going through. I don't choose to read Havel's text in order particularly to point to the problems in Czechoslovakia, but rather to, as I say, illustrate how a writer writes. Dear Mr. President, I'm addressing you before your upcoming visit to Czechoslovakia because I would like, at least briefly, to inform you about the unfortunate situation in our country and to ask you to keep it in mind. I'm writing with the following idea. Many foreign politicians come to our country with the unconscious thought that they will meet only with cut-in-the-rough faces of dull dictators. Then they are pleasantly surprised, almost charmed, that they are welcomed by smiling, shaved faces of fashionably dressed and kind people who talk about their long-lasting friendship with the country of their visitors, about their deep interest in mutual cooperation, and about their most sincere will to improve the situation in our country and to broaden freedom and democracy. It is no doubt a happy experience to listen to all this. A good man is always more likely to believe the kind face of his partner than the secondhand news about how this partner is in reality behaving. That's humanly understandable, but not politically prudent. I'm far from suspecting you of political naivete. However, I consider your visit very important and yet so easily manipulated into a definite proof of respect for our leaders' policies that I feel a need once again to underline the, the sad discrepancy between the face that is shown to foreign guests and the face that is shown at home. It is true that while our leaders talk about rebuilding and democratization, the true meaning of such speeches is only to disguise the old way of ruling in a modern, fashionable garment. While in other countries in the Soviet bloc, it is possible to recognize a will to change for the better, in Czechoslovakia, the moral, social, economic, and environmental crises are only deepening. The life in our country is empty, unfree, and depressive. Its everyday components are subtle, but at the same time, equ time equal a thorough humiliation of man. Our rulers resolutely refuse any dialogue with society and believe that they will manage to postpone the final catastrophe to which these crises are inevitably leading. They hope to postpone the catastrophe until their age will send them to those places where anything worldly will be irrelevant to them. Not only has society been aware of this precarious politics for a long time, but it is also daring to point at it. In this situation, there is only one possible consequence. Every free political manifestation is continually suppressed. Brave people are jailed. Scientific symposia are dispersed. The independent press is harassed. Police are interrogating, conducting house searches, blackmailing, and threatening. Thousands of artists, scientists, and journalists are still not allowed to work in their fields. All the allowed culture is still directed by the same unqualified and sometimes almost illiterate bureaucracy. Citizens are even denied the right to know that, that our government wants to acquire hard currency by importing toxic wastes from the West. 
Everything which the present leadership does not like or which contradicts its manipulation, it brands as anti-socialist and therefore hostile. An anti-socialist is not only a citizen who is for a political plurality or an economist who criticizes the unreasonable manipulation of the economy. It is not only the one who is taking sides with the political prisoners. My friends and I were jailed for several years for this crime. It is also a singer who is singing about the destruction of the forests or an old man who on the, 70th, on the day of the 70th anniversary of our state places in his window a portrait of our first president. Even you, Mr. Mitterrand, would be anti-socialist in our country. Anti-socialist would also be all the members of your government, almost all the journalists, leading artists, and even the majority of French communists. All this you would, of course, not be told by our leaders while talking to them. At the best, they will mention some groups of dissidents who are poisoning the air and destroying the successful reconstruction and democratization. It is not true. Foremost in destruction is the leadership of our country and the huge bureaucratic apparatus which does not want to use its privileges. Destructive are those who were never elected in a free election and who are afraid that any sign of democracy could threaten their power. I'm sure you have at your disposal all concrete evidence of the situation which I'm describing here, and I firmly believe as the leader of a country with a long democratic tradition, a country which is a symbol of a free spirit, you will not be silent toward all that is happening in today's Czechoslovakia, and you will not support by your visit the meaningfulness of the politics of today's leadership. This would harm our people and would not help European detente. Sincerely yours, Václav Havel, December 2nd, 
their dread. For Jack, our dear friend's poems are out, unparoled, his metaphors dancing from lip to lip, and no heavyweight knuckles ripping pages can stop them. The crippled swagger, we've got your friend, calms outrage at that night. That frog-loud prison yard leaned on by the mountain where Jack, Joke, Patch, Matchwood hardens like starlight needing no crutch. The following poem printed in the November-December 1987 issue of Index on Censorship describes Jack Mapanji's return to Malawi in 1984. It's called Another Fool's Day Touches Down, Shush, for Mercy, Judith, Lunda, and Lika. Another Fool's Day Touches Down, Another Homecoming. Shush. Bunting, some anniversary, they'll be preoccupied. Only a wife, children, and a friend probably waiting. A PhD, three books, a baby boy, three and a half years. Some feet. Friends nestling up for a warm story. If you can't hear me, please do cry out. <laughs> we were fortunate to get a um, letter from Dashiell Hammett that he wrote to his daughter back in 1951. And um, Andrea Gambino and a few other people at Penn worked very hard to get it. And then it arrived, and it's exactly unlike any other piece of prison literature I've ever encountered. Because if you didn't know the man was in prison, you really wouldn't have much of a clue. It's a perfect example of the way uh, Dashiell Hammett always was. He was in jail, essentially, for uh, in, back in 1950 and 51, for uh, being a communist. But he was the most unlikely uh, communist that uh, anyone had ever encountered. I think, technically, he was uh, in the coop because he'd uh, obviously, I think he had been in contempt of one or another of those many committees that uh, eventually spawned Joe McCarthy about a year later. But Hammett, as I say, was the oddest communist I've ever known because he really detested, as a matter of personal style, everything about the communists. He hated their heavy language. He hated their uh, centrality of thought. Uh, he hated the way they phrased questions. Uh, he hated the sententiousness of the polemics. Uh, he was an odd man, 
He was easily as tall as Arthur Miller, and he was as slim as uh, James Angleton of the CIA, the famous eminence gris of the uh, CIA, with whom actually Hammett shared an odd resemblance. Uh, I speak of him because I knew him slightly, and it was a great but disturbing pleasure. I remember the first time we ever went out together, uh, it was at about, oh, I think it was at 12 o'clock in the morning, we were going to have lunch. And he took me to an Irish bar somewhere on the West 40s between 5th and 6th Avenue near the Algonquin. Uh, as a matter of fact, we met at the Algonquin and he said, oh, let's not uh, drink there. Uh, he had, parenthetically, the oddest voice you've ever heard. Uh, I keep using the word odd, but you'll see what I mean. It was a cross, and it's absolutely beyond my histrionic powers to begin to suggest what his voice was like. I can only describe it. It was halfway between um, uh, Jimmy Breslin and uh, Prince Mountbatten. <laughs> and so he said something, and I won't even try to attempt to suggest the voice. He said, oh, kid, let's not drink. Uh, I was 25 then. He said, oh, kid, let's not drink at the Algonquin. That's old hat. Let's go somewhere. So we crossed the street and went into an Irish bar, which was about 85 feet long and had one of those enormous long bars with a rail. And then he immediately ordered a double scotch uh, on the rocks, I think. And I, knowing no better, went along with him. And he started drinking and talking and chatting, and had this odd, offbeat way, talking out of the corner of his mouth. He used to sound almost like a hood. I was very much in awe of him. He had come to me enormously well-recommended. Lillian Hellman kept saying, he is the smartest man I know. And so I listened to every word he said and kept drinking with him, and we had four double scotches in an hour. <laughs> an act I've never attempted to repeat. And then we went out on the street, and he said, so long, kid. And this tall, elegant figure strode down 44th Street, and I, for the first time in my life, was dead drunk at 1 o'clock in the afternoon. I learned early what it is not to know what you can do with the rest of your day because you're too drunk to drink anymore. You've somehow got to get home. So I mention this because this letter is a perfect example of Hammett. He always downplayed everything. He could go to jail, but he was damned if he was going to complain about it. And he was damned, he was double damned if he was ever going to talk about anything serious. He was in the true, deep vein of uh, the Hemingway tradition. In fact, there were some who said, I don't know that I would be one, that he was more Hemingway than Hemingway. At any rate, if you think of Ernest Hemingway as being a communist who didn't like communists, but just thought finally that there was more logic on their side, than on the American side. I think Hammett probably saw so much sleaziness in American life as a private detective that he formed his opinion strong and early. But in any event, if you think of Ham Hammett as this uh, uh, communist Hemingway uh, who will never admit to any kind of the pain or suffering, the letter will begin to uh, make its odd sense. He was ill when he went to jail. His dear friends were terribly worried he'd never make it through jail because he'd not been well for many years. And in fact, after he came out of jail, he was only in for a year or 15 months, uh, he uh, was never well again and spent the last 10 years of his life an invalid. Uh, you will see almost nothing of that in this letter. He's writing to his daughter, Mrs. Josephine Marshall, on November 5th, 1951, from a uh, place called Ashland in Kentucky, uh, a prison. Dear Princess, 
Today's been a lazy sort of Sunday, bright and sunny and only reasonably cold, with some snow still hanging on the grass and on the nearby hills. I seem to have slept most of the day away. An hour and a half's nap between breakfast and dinner, and maybe a little longer on in the afternoon. Though I did go out for what I guess you could call a brisk 30-minute walk around the park, around the yard, I beg your pardon, around the yard. I'm due to leave here five weeks from today. The time goes very rapidly, though I had expected it to drag a little along here towards the last. There is, of course, no news, unless you would like to know that I had fresh pork steak for dinner and grilled cheese sandwiches for supper and haven't yet changed into my winter underwear and things like that. When you write to Muriel again, ask her how Willie the turtle is. I don't think I've told you about Willie. She's a she, so I suppose her real name is Wilhelmina. Wood turtle spotted alongside the road at the lake at Pleasantville and picked up by Willie Wyler on his birthday, which is why she's named Willie, and then picked up by me. I brought her into the city a week later to turn her loose in my yard. Wood turtles are quite tame and make nice pets if you like stupid pets. <laughs> turtles are also traditionally considered bad luck. The day after I brought Willie into the city, I was thrown into the clink, and so you can see she has a special place in my heart. <laughs> On the same day we found Willie, I caught a snapping turtle that made a very nice soup, which is by no means bad luck. Well, wood turtles, though small, are edible too, maybe. It's getting a little chilly in here. Some cluck turned off the heat a little while ago. So maybe I'll stop this and pry a hot shower and some blankets. My love to everybody, and in an especially noisy way to you, Lily, and the Anne thing. And it's signed, Pop. resume my dance with this podium, and I'm going to read you portions of two letters, two more letters from Vaclav Havel, but these are not to the President of France. These are two of the 144 letters that he wrote to his wife, Olga, during the period from 1979 to 1983, when he was imprisoned for our activities connected the Committee to Defend the Unjustly Prosecuted. He had to contend with a very severe prison censorship, but as these letters, I think, will show, he was a man who was determined to say what he wanted to say, and he found a way. Dear Olga, several days ago, during the weather report, it precedes the news on television each day, so I see it regularly. Something went wrong in the studio, and the sound cut out. Though the picture continued as usual, there was neither the announcement, do not adjust your sets, nor landscape photographs, as there usually is in such cases. The employee of the Meteorological Institute, who was explaining the forecast, quickly grasped what had happened 
but because she was not a professional announcer, she didn't know what to do. At this point, a strange thing happened. The mantle of routine fell away, and before us there suddenly stood a confused, unhappy, and terribly embarrassed woman. She stopped talking, looked in desperation at us, then somewhere off to the side, but there was no help from that direction. She could scarcely hold back her tears. Exposed to the view of millions, yet desperately alone, thrown into an unfamiliar, unexpected, and unresolvable situation. Incapable of conveying through mime that she was above it all, by shrugging her shoulders and smiling, for instance, drowning in embarrassment, <coughs> she stood there in all the nakedness of human helplessness, face to face with the big bad world and herself, with the absurdity of her position, and with the desperate question of what to do with herself, how to rescue her dignity, how to, to acquit herself, how to be. Exaggerated as it may seem, <clears throat> I suddenly saw in that event an image of the primal situation of humanity, a situation of separation, of being cast into an alien world and standing there before the question of self. Moreover, I realized at once that with the woman, I was experiencing an almost physical dread. With her, I was overwhelmed by a terrible sense of embarrassment. I blushed and felt her shame. I too felt like crying. Irrespective of my will, I was flooded with an absurdly, absurdly powerful compassion for this stranger. A surprising thing here of all places, for in spite of yourself, you share the general tendency of the prisoners to see everything related to television as a part of the hostile world that locked them up. I felt miserable because I had no way of helping her, of taking her place, or at least of stroking her hair. Why did I suddenly, and quite irrationally, feel such an overwhelming sense of responsibility for someone whom I not only did not know, but whose misery was merely transmitted to me via television? Why should I care? Does it even distantly concern me? Am I more observant or sensitive than others? And if I am, why was I so affected by this, of all things, when today and every day I see incomparably worse forms of suffering all around me? After having wet, read only one short excerpt in Ivan's letter, I don't feel I can judge the breadth and depth of meaning that the idea of responsibility has in Levinas' philosophical work. But if Levinas is claiming that that responsibility for others is something primal and vitally important, something we are thrown into and by virtue of which we transcend ourselves from the beginning, and that this sense of responsibility precedes our freedom, our will, our capacity to choose, and the aims we set for ourselves, then I share his opinion entirely. In fact, I've always felt that, though I didn't put it to myself that way. Yes, a boundless and unmotivated sense of responsibility, that, quote, existence beyond your own existence, quote, is undoubtedly one of the things into which we are primordially thrown and which constitutes us. That responsibility, authentic, not yet filtered through anything else, devoid of all speculation, preceding any conscious assumption, non-transferable to anything else, 
and inexplicable in psychological terms, exist, as it were, before the I itself. First I find myself in it, and only then, having in one way or another either accepted or rejected this thrownness, do I constitute myself as the person I am. In itself, the incident with the weather woman was insignificant, yet it vividly confirmed all of this within my own tiny frame of reference, not only because it happened in the atmosphere evoked by my having just read that excerpt from the Venus, but mainly, I think, because it was such an incisive representation of human vulnerability. And if, in that moment, I felt such a powerful sense of responsibility for this particular woman and felt so entirely on her side, though common sense tells me she's doubtless better off than I am, and probably never gives me a thought if she knows about me at all, then this was likely because the more transparently vulnerable and helpless humanity is, the more urgently does its misfortune cry out for compassion. This dramatic exposure of another, void of all obfuscating detail and all appearances, reveals and presents to man his own primordial and half-forgotten vulnerability, throws him back into it, and abruptly reminds him that he too stands alone and isolated, helpless and unprotected, and that it is an image of his own basic situation, that is, a situation we all share, a common isolation, the isolation of humanity thrown into the world, and that this isolation injures us all the same way, regardless of who concretely happens to be injured in a given instant. A little earlier. Dear Olga, in recent years I've met several intelligent and decent people who were very clearly, and to my mind, very tragically, marked by their fate. They became bitter, misanthropic world-haters who lost faith in everything. Quite separately, they managed to persuade themselves that people are selfish, evil, and untrustworthy, that it makes no sense to help anyone, to try to achieve anything or rectify anything, that all moral principles, higher aims, superpersonal ideals are naively utopian, and that one must accept the world as it is, which is to say, unalterably bad, and behave accordingly. And that means looking out for no one but oneself and living the rest of one's life as quietly and inconspicuously as possible. In certain extreme circumstances, it is by no means difficult to succumb to this philosophy of life. Nevertheless, I think that giving up on life, and this philosophy is an expression of that attitude, is one of the saddest forms of human downfall, because it is a descent into regions where life really does lose its meaning. Today I understand, perhaps better than I ever did before, that one can become embittered. The temptation of nothingness is enormous and omnipresent and has more and more to rest its case on, more to appeal to. Against it, man stands alone, weak, and poorly armed, his position worse than ever before in history. And yet I am convinced that there is nothing in this veil of tears that, of itself, can rob man of hope, faith, and the meaning of life. He loses these things only when he himself falters, when he yields to the temptations of nothingness. Everything meaningful in life, though it may assume the most dramatic form of questioning and doubting, 
is distinguished by a certain transcendence of individual human experience, existence, excuse me, beyond the limits of mere self-care toward other people, toward society, toward the world, only by looking outward, by caring for things that in terms of pure survival he needn't bother with at all, by constantly asking himself all sorts of questions, and by throwing himself over and over again into the tumult of the world with the intention of making his voice count. Only thus does one really become a person, a creator of the order of the spirit, a being capable of a miracle. In 1938, the um, Turkish poet Nazim Hikmet was arrested and charged with inciting the army to revolt um, on the evidence that his letters and poems were being read by soldiers. He was um, convicted and sentenced to 28 years. Um, this poem, my name is David Henry Huang. I'm going to read. Thank you. I'm going to read About Your Hands and Lies, which was written from prison, 1948. Your hands grave like all stones, sad like all songs sung in prison, clumsy and heavy like all beasts of burden. Your hands that are like the sullen faces of hungry children. Your hands nimble and light like bees, full like breasts with milk, brave like nature, your hands that hide their friendly softness under their rough skin. This world doesn't rest on the horns of a bull. This world rests on your hands. People, oh my people, they feed you with lies, but you're hungry. You need to be fed with meat and bread. And never once eating a full meal at a white table, you leave this world where every branch is loaded with fruit. Oh my people, especially those in Asia, Africa, the Near East, Middle East, Pacific Islands, and my countrymen. I mean more than 70% of all people. You are old and absent-minded like your hands. You are curious, amazed, and young like your hands. Oh, my people, my European, my American, you are awake, bold, and forgetful like your hands. Like your hands, you are quick to seduce, easy to deceive. People, oh my people, if the antennas are lying, if the presses are lying, if the books lie, if the poster on the wall and the ad in the column lie, if the naked thighs of girls on the white screen lie, if the prayer lies, if the lullaby lies, if the dream is lying, if the violin player at the tavern is lying, if the moonlight on the nights of hopeless days lies, if the voice lies, if the word lies, if everything but your hands, if everyone is lying, it's so your hands will be obedient like clay, blind like darkness, 
stupid like sheepdogs. It's so your hands won't rebel. And it's so that in this mortal, this livable world, where we are guests so briefly anyway, this merchant's empire, this cruelty won't end. My name is Bharati Mukherjee, and I shall read from two imprisoned writers. First, two short poems from Flowers from Hell by the Vietnamese writer Wen Chi Tin. He has been imprisoned many times, and he has been uh, spent two years in re-education camps. My life's a book. My life's a book I long ago put down. It once had hopes, those sheets all crumpled now. Let winds blow off the leaves and turn it quick to its last page, a plot of dirt brown earth. Do you know that? Do you know that inside the cruel jail, unclothed, stark cold, with chattering teeth, so starved that ribs will jut against the skin, too ill and weak to put up any fight. I stay awake through long white nights in silence, making poems, oh my friend. And next, excerpts from a 196-page Notes from Prison, an open letter which was smuggled out of prison. And the author is Lu Ching, who was born in China in 1945. Solitary confinement. My own time in solitary confinement was relatively brief, and I was, of course, not so badly affected. But I didn't come out unscathed. One day, I noticed large tufts of matted hair on the cotton blanket I was lying on. I went to look in the small mirror on the door and discovered that my hairline had receded right back to the top of my head. It was very damp in the cell, and I'd been crouching in a corner for long periods of time. Perhaps this was why my left foot was so swollen and ached so much. I was quite short-sighted to begin with. Now my eyesight has deteriorated rapidly. I began to talk to myself. Sometimes I carried on feverish debates with an imaginary opponent. And I tried to remember formulae in mathematics, physics, and chemistry. I made deductions and drew diagrams on the wall. Please don't laugh at me, but I missed my mother very much. It hurt me deeply to think of the sadness I'd brought her in her old age. In April, looking up through the broken window in the toilet, out at the high perimeter walls and the electrified barbed wire, I saw a small green leaf of devil's ginger pushing its way up through the black soil. Such a dazzling green. I felt a burning desire to be out beneath the blue sky. And another excerpt from Luching. 
prison friends. My prison friends took good care of me. I've never been much good at keeping an even keel in my everyday life. I often neglect practical things that need to be done. I fail to keep myself neat and tidy. I might forget to do my laundry when my bedding and clothes were dirty because I spent so much time reading the newspaper or just sitting idly or debating issues with uh, other people. My cellmates often helped to give me a thorough cleaning. It was very moving to see the enthusiasm with which they set about spreading out my bedding and clothes to wash them, the patience with which they darned the holes in my socks. They even smudged me down a few times. It was such a nice feeling to be clean again and to be wearing clean clothes. It cheered me up and my mind functioned better as a result. They gave me a nickname, Chicken. I was short-sighted, and once when Wu Jinping was holding up a picture of two chubby babies, I'd mistaken them for two chickens. So when they passed by my cell, they often shouted out, hey, chicken. It was quite a coincidence, because my friends at Today had also nicknamed me chicken. They said I was fond of arguing. They said I was a fighting bird. by Cheslaw Milos and uh, is printed by the University of California Press, in case you like it. Anyway, impotence in the face of armed evil is probably the worst of human humiliations. When six hulks pin you to the ground, you're helpless, but you do not want to give up your natural right to dignity. You are not going to reach any agreements with the ruffians. You're not going to make any commitments. When they take you from your house, beat you with all their might, burn your eyes with tear gas, break open your front door with a crowbar and wreck your furniture right in front of your family. When, in the middle of the night, they drive you to the police station in handcuffs and order you to sign statements, then your ordinary instinct for self-preservation and your basic sense of human dignity will make you say no, because even if these people were doing it all in the name of the best and noblest cause, they would be destroying that cause with their misdeeds. Your common sense also tells you that by signing the loyalty declaration, you are placing a whip in the hands of the policemen. They will wave it around and threaten you in order to force you to sign the next declaration, your agreement to collaborate with them. 
With this, your loyalty declaration will transform itself into your pact with the devil. This is why you should not give these police inquisitors even the tip of your finger, because they will instantly grab your whole arm. You know that you are no hero, and that you never wanted to be one. You have never wanted to die for your nation, or for freedom, or for anything else, for that matter. The fates of Winkelried and Ordon, legendary heroes who died for their countries, which were overwhelmed by superior enemies, those fates have never tempted you. You have always wanted to be alive, to live like a normal person, to have respect for yourself and for your friends. You have always enjoyed the moral comfort that allows you to take pleasure in your inner freedom, in beautiful women and in wine. This war surprised you in the company of a pretty woman, not while you were plotting an assault on the Central Committee headquarters. Nevertheless, they did declare this war on you and over 30 million other people, and so you are forced to recognize that amid the street roundups, the ignoble court sentences, the despicable radio programs, and the distribution of leaflets by underground solidarity, you will not regain the normalcy that was based on respect for yourself. Now, you must choose between moral and material stability, because you know that today's normalcy will have the bitter taste of self-defeat. And you will not, for the sake of life's enjoyments, give in to the tempting offers of freedom made by the policeman who seeks to delude you with promises of happiness, but really brings suffering and inner hell instead. You know how profound the feeling of loneliness can be. You think that you are powerless against the police army machine that was mobilized on that December night. You still don't know what will happen. You still don't know that people will begin to recover from the shock, that underground papers will appear, that Jibzeg B will lead his solidarity region from the underground, that in Rokhlov they will fail to capture Vladek F, that Gdansk, Svidnik, and Poznan will again shake up all Poland, that illegal union structures will be formed. You still don't know that the general's vehicle is sinking in sand, its wheels spinning in place, that the avalanche of repression and calumnies is missing its aim. But you do know, as you stand alone, handcuffed, with your eyes filled with tear gas, in front of the policemen who are shaking their guns at you, you can see it clearly in the dark and starless night thanks to your favorite poet, that the course of the avalanche depends on the stones over which it rolls. It's Milos. And you want to be the stone that will reverse the course of events. I'm Judy Bloom. And I'm going to share a letter from a woman imprisoned in Africa now, without charge or trial since 1980. She was in her 20s at the time of her arrest with three small children, one of them still being breastfed. Uh, when she wrote to Penn member Alice Jameson, she assumed Jameson was a man's name. Alice wrote back, setting the record straight. And here is her response. My dear Alice, warmest and heartiest greetings. When I got your letter and knew you were a woman, I laughed loudly and heartily for the first time in many years. 
My dearest Alice, this by no means affects our correspondence adversely. Indeed, we're in tragically different situations, and your being a woman, I feel, draws us closer together and tightens our ties. What's a tie anyway? A bracelet or a handcuff? I don't know exactly the time now, as I don't have a watch, but I hear some cocks from nearby houses crowing. I'd say it's probably between 3 and 4 a.m. Right in front of me, two meters away, hanging on the wall, I'm looking at my handbag. On it, I have knitted my motto, love the life you live to live the life you love. I got it seven years back from a collection of quotable quotes, and we've never parted ever since. Above it, there's a small window. Probably somebody peeps in every now and then. We have no rain at this time of year, and the sky is clear most of the time. And I'm lucky to be looking at a lonely, distant star twinkling down at me. Whatever light she beams is swallowed by this night. I couldn't get her warmth, for she's so far away. Just guess who I'm thinking of right now. It's you, Alice Jameson. For me, you're just like this star. You're warm-hearted and friendly and smiling, but too far away to help. And you're lonely, too. You may not feel loneliness, but that's my impression anyway. When you likened those cats of yours to my children, my eyes brimmed. Had it not been for something beyond my control, I wouldn't have lost the sight of my kids even for a second. Are you happy living that way, Alice, dear? Don't you like to have a family? I'm so curious to know this. Or am I being too nosy on personal matters? Well, it's because I'm concerned about you. Isn't that mutual? Besides, I feel there's a strong spiritual convenience in having a family and I wish you could enjoy that satisfaction. Oh, I'm flattered about that violet you named for me, Alice. It shows me how much you care, and I'm drawn to you more and more, and I'm beginning to love you, even without knowing you. Could you send me your picture, please? About that winter game of yours, you made me feel as though I were there with you. I'm so longing for it now, but I'll have to leave that to the great arms of someday. As time goes by, I see changes in myself. I think I'm growing a bit more irritable. I had a good sense of humor, but I'm losing that now. I used to have a good memory, but it's porous now. I used not to complain even when life is at stake. Now I complain for all and for nothing. But my days don't stand still, as you thought. On the contrary, I have no time at all. I work round the clock, though I pour myself out on free services, teaching and assisting the others here. In fact, I'm overloaded. And when I go to bed at night, I'm so exhausted that I hardly know when my head touches the pillow. I'm so active in our school here, Alice. But I better not begin this topic now. Maybe if you're interested later, let me know. Alice. I hate being a troubled child for the pen, but as I'm driven by necessity, I haven't closed my sizes. The request for shoes is about a year old now, and I'm not going barefooted, although at that time I nearly did. 
necessity has since shifted to other areas. Could you please find me some bed sheets, a pajama, and a dressing gown, if you don't mind? For these, I believe you don't need my size, do you? In general, to let you know a bit of my taste, I prefer slacks to dresses. You know what, Alice? Something tells me we have the same shape and size. Am I wrong, or are you the most shapeless and fattest woman in the world? <laughs> if you haven't gotten my letters, keep in touch with me through our mutual friend. Oh, Alice, I forgot to tell you, I have a son of 11. If you don't mind giving your hand in marriage to a black boy, and above all, if you can afford the patience and wait for him, I'll be glad to drag you out of your lovely shell. <laughs> I just turned 33. How do you like being my daughter-in-law, Alice? Give my love to all who know me. P.S. How many of our members are women? Remarkable book I know, uh, written in, in prison by a contemporary writer, is is a book actually. Uh, of, of course, it was made after the writer's release from prison. I'm talking about uh, a book that was published by the Russian writer Andrei Sinyavsky, who was in prison in the Soviet Union after a very uh, famous trial from 1966 to 1971. Uh, now this, this book, which, which has the title in English, A Voice from the Chorus, is a, is a sort of collage book that he did uh, after his release when he and his wife uh, went into exile. It, it, uh, like, like the Havel book, it, uh, it consists of letters to his wife. He was only allowed to write to his wife uh, during, during the uh, uh, six years in prison, five years in prison, rather. But instead of publishing the letters, he, uh, he reworked them into a series of, of paragraphs and micro-essays and aphorisms, uh, um, destroying, in, in a way, exploding the, the, the letter form. So you wouldn't, you wouldn't, in fact, know that they come from letters, but they are. The book consists of uh, extracts and excerpts rearranged or assembled from the letters he wrote to his wife. And as I say, it is for sheer literary quality and intellectual interest on every level uh, the most interesting book, I think, that I know of that's ever been written in prison, uh, comes out of prison writings. It's an extraordinary book, uh, most of which deals with literature, various ideas about literature and life and psychology. Uh, really wor worthy of Dostoevsky. I want to read just two, ex uh, three, three excerpts rather, where he talks about the psychology of prison life. Like everything else in, at Sidniewski writes, it's not uh, an obvious way of looking at things. He talks about what's interesting and valuable in his experience in prison. And he has uh, extraordinary insights into the state of being a prisoner. So here are three excerpts from a book called A, a Voice from the Chorus. Psychologically, life in a labor camp is like traveling in a long-distance train. The automatic forward movement of time 
creates the illusion that an otherwise empty existence is being filled and made meaningful. Whatever you may be doing, your sentence is going forward so that the days do not follow each other needlessly, but have a purpose, working, as it were, for you and for the future, thereby acquiring significance. Again, as in a train, the passengers do not feel particularly called on to occupy themselves with useful work, since their journey is anyway justified by the steady, if slow, progress toward their destination. They can permit themselves to live in whatever ways are open to them, playing dominoes, wandering around, and gossiping, without any qualms of conscience about wasting time. The very fact of being engaged in serving out your sentence injects a dose of splendid utility into everything. But I am still made frantic by the constant cries of, what are you hurrying for? We have all the time in the world. Why don't you find some way of enjoying yourself? I find it hard to get used to the idea of living at the expense of the future. However, the point is not what I feel about it, but the peculiarity of a situation in which you make up for the lack of a purpose in life by finding meaning only in the process of living out your days. It sometimes seems to me that in these conditions of simply waiting for the sentence to end, people may well be happier than they are living in freedom, only they have not quite grasped that fact. Another excerpt. How diminished people seem once they are freed, only in our eyes, of course, not in their own. In their own eyes, they are taking on a new lease of life. In ours, they blur and fade away. <clears throat> it is not that they become strangers, but rather that they are no longer of our world, as though they were dead. And if this is the effect of such a minor transposition in space, how much more must it be true of those who depart for other lands or planets? This is probably why we do not envy those who leave. They are too remote and appear unreal. One is engulfed by the environment. I do not mean by a particular set of local interests, nor through becoming accustomed to a specific way of life, but because of something not subject to a normal explanation, to logic, a feeling of growing isolation and detachment. Perhaps the monasteries were founded on this simple geometry of drawing a circle around people, all that was needed to create a place of retreat. And the last excerpt, which is uh, just when he was released in 1971, on the eve of his release, rather, a few days, in fact, I think, before his release. Coming out of prison is like making a posthumous appearance in the world. It is not like being born again because one is old, older, and weak, but much water has flowed under the bridges, and we find it odd to observe that time has continued to pass by 
quite unconcerned and indifferent to our absence. And the fact that reality has just gone on impassively, turning the handle of its hurdy-gurdy, regardless of who leaves or rejoins its merry cavalcade, is the chief cause of irritation and gloom in those who come back. The sensation of a secondary, posthumous existence arises from our lack of involvement in life, from the fact that we still go on viewing it as distant observers, even though it is now at close quarters again. Both mind and body are numbed. All you are aware of is your peculiar relationship to the world, your sense of existing in it as a specter. Hence your inability and unwillingness, itself somewhat half-hearted, to fall in with any kind of fuss and bother, such as buying sandwiches or drinking a bottle of beer. None of this is important or necessary, since all that really means anything to you is your function of being a spectral presence. Life is not to blame for this, only one's lack of interest in living it after having once been buried. Possibly for this reason, it frequently happens that those who come back die fairly soon after their return to life. In theory, they should live happily ever after. While they were in limbo, it was the dream of doing so that gave them the strength to survive. But then they lose interest and no longer want to live. They simply lack the will or the desire to re-enter their former existence and succumb to their view of themselves as ghosts. I am Luisa Valenzuela. Um, I am Luisa Valenzuela. I will read. No, okay. Speaking to it. Is it all right now? Yeah. I'll speak louder. I will read two pieces translated by Laurie Carlson from the Spanish. The first will be a poem that Roberto Coronel wrote from the prison of Villa de Voto when he learned that two of his companions, that two of his friends had been assassinated by the military government in 1971. These are the beds, this is a table, the bench, my fist, everybody's fist, descends forcefully on them. We affirm our useless bodies. Here are the 11 iron bars, the guardian, the walls. Here our impotence, the rage, the pain, the disgust, the solid tears like bullet wounds, the skin. The fist rises and descends with force. The strike, the strikes, the wood striking the wood. A large, dry, slight chorus of strikes. They have captured them, Maria. They have wounded them, Maria. They have assassinated them, Maria. 
And what can we do in this tribune with grating? Ask, cry, curse, walk in circles with our hands in our pockets, our teeth grinding, come closer to the radio, to wait for names, initials, the details, the details, the details. The prisoner is a useless human being in a state of permanent rage. He was running shirtless and a bullock in his waist. Wherever does he go? What is he trying to think about? The blood, a delicate caress, indifferent. The barking of the assassins echoes in his efforts to flee. We are with him, we open the doors for him. We take him up to the car, we put bandages on him, we cover his flight. We hide him, he doesn't move. We drew up in our gray beds. The iron bars leave parallel marks on the body. But I remember him in other times, Maria, a time of wind and birds, of bending our heads down and walking with our eyes closed. Not a metaphor, but a method. Another time of learning reality in its own fire, of slapping each other on the back, of leaving in order to fight, of looking out of the corner of our eyes, days of understanding one another, of not understanding anything about each other, walking on the streets, arguing our points, laughing of ourselves sick, together, Maria, together. There were really other times. I remember an avenue of dry leaves, Herman's gestures, Claudia's sullen silence, and the enormous mustaches of Serruccio. My hands grab the iron bars. My will takes the inexorable future. And now you see my nostalgia for the past, enormous. If you start crying, I'll kill you, Maria. Now more than ever, for Kike too has died, and we know they were executed. I also have here an excerpt from a letter of another Argentine prisoner. This is a woman. She wrote it already when she was out of jail. She had been uh, tortured by the Division of Anti-Democratic Political Activities, the DIFA, which is fortunately no longer in existence. And um, she's telling about the death of her baby because of the tortures. Her name is Susana Luna. And she's sending this letter to her jailmates, to the women that were in prison with her during her time. And they are still in prison. I don't even know how I've woven together the words of this letter. I ask you to communicate to everyone has, what has happened to the child, which we all cared for and adored in a very special way who before being born was carried inside these walls and iron bars imposed by the mercenaries, the lackeys, and the accomplices of the government. The doctor's words were precise. The mother's physiological, psychological stress during the period of gestation caused the child's death. I don't know how to tell you all this. Everything that could have been and wasn't a son, the special one, that child that left us. As a mother, I feel an indescribable pain. As a woman, I feel frustration. As an idealist, a fierce hatred for the enemy who killed him. I beg you to answer me. Not to give me consolation, no. The child died, 
The child is another martyr and hero of the cause. And so the usual insensible and conventional condolences don't count. No. What I need now are the words of my companions, of you, my compañeras, who shared my ideal. For all of you, a huge emotional kiss. Susana Luna. Slicks down his yellow hair, looks in the mirror into his red-rimmed eyes, worms the mustache around. He has a secure establishment in his care, all gates mastered, guards posted in watchtowers, dead areas locked at both ends, and key carrier cooped up within. But safe enough? Those minds, those hearts, what if bastards? So he has a high wall built around the no-go terrain with TV-controlled, steel-plated double gates, the only egress. Now it is truly a maximum security. Young deer let loose to roam over green lawns between wall and fort. He has a weakness for life. Two, he gets up after the nightmares of half sleep. What if one never knows with these traitors and terrorists, these rapists and assassins? HQ headquarters was adamant about that. Let one, just one bandit get away and you might as well run with him. The perspiration is chilly on his back. They are always scheming, these dogs. They have visions of freedom. Turn away, they start digging, climbing, fainting, thinking, corrupting the waters. He has the roof torn from the prison to be replaced by a grid of steel, a catwalk permitting the armed guardians to keep a constant eye on their charges. Now, ah, this boop is breakproof. Three, he surfaces gagging from the tortures of sleep, the yellow hair all tousled Brigadier General Murphy. Small blood vessels darken his vision, the trembling of his legs, careful you may nick yourself with the razor, this damn stubble, my God, what if? It takes just one suicidal escape. One only to have this whole magnificent, impregnable, maximum security pussy crumble to ridicule. He has an electronic eye installed in every cell. We shall have surveillance 25 hours a day. Snoop lenses sweep the corridors, eliminate the blind angles. Tape recorders are connected to the toilet bowls. From the ramparts, he goes to the catwalk, 
squints down at the vestiges of humanity below. There's a rash around his neck, just inside the collar, itching terribly. I want those courtyards covered by wire netting immediately. You think the sly sons of bitches can't scale four meters of sheer wall? And if a helicopter were to... Ooh, Jesus Christ. Four. He orders, reviews, refines. Every prisoner must be escorted by a guard with dog at all times of the day or the night. Five. No more contact between inmates. Six. The water with dog shall get into the bath with the prisoner. Yes, man. Of course the state will issue with overalls for this purpose. Seven. All eating utensils shall henceforth be of plastic. No mirrors anywhere. No exercise outside or inside. No more smoking. Quiet there. And your grandmother's cunt. Eight. Listen. The water and dog shall spend the nights in bed with the convict. Man on man. A second water with FN and baton and whistle and walkie-talkie outside the locked, mastered, bolted, padlocked, 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 steel-reinforced cell door and inside grill. Changing of the shift at midnight. Ah, uh, but it is good to run a rehabilitation center fulfilling its first and foremost function to keep the wards of the state in safekeeping. Nine, the night was an agony. Behind his eyelids, even with orbs staring into the dark, he visualized all the horrors, the headlines, the sanctions, the total breaking. Today, at noon, an SKP from maximum security. Oh, sweet, dear, compassionate, cruel, merciless God. What if? What the fucking hell if? For instance, he's an old wreck, crushed by responsibility, by the specter of overthrow. He has the prisoners, the blind worms, taken out into the central courtyard, stood against a wall one by one, murmuring, shot. Now the prisoners are in maximum security, sir. 10. He struggles up, suffocating through layer upon layer of not having slept at all. playwright and director who incidentally uh, was trained at Yale University and uh, was jailed for uh, I think four years. Uh, 
I would uh, just surround this letter with some personal uh, information that might uh, give you some clue as to what uh, the real violence of that uh, society is. I was there three years ago <coughs> with Harold Pinter in an attempt to uh, get some people out of prison or to alleviate some of the conditions and uh, spoke with a uh, publisher who is one of the leading publishers of Istanbul who uh, was arrested uh, in about a year before I got there with his brother, who was his partner in the business. And they put them into a van and uh, handcuffed both of them. But uh, he was handcuffed with his hands in front of him, and his brother was handcuffed with his hands behind him. In the van, which is the custom, they were beaten by the police, and the brother was killed because he couldn't protect his head. And this publisher changed his name to his brother's name. Uh, this is a not unusual story. Uh, this is the letter from Ali Taigun, who is now out of prison. Dear Mary, Chekhov's Three Sisters, Act Two. I think it's been 15 years since I did it, but I believe it ends with Irina repeating, to Moscow, to Moscow. And at that point, you realize that she'll never get to see the capital. None of them will, but they spend the rest of their lives dreaming of getting there, waiting. My production concept was built on the proposition that their town was half an hour away from Moscow by train. <laughs> that if they up and left, they'd be there, and they still didn't go. <laughs> These were people who made waiting a way of life. And as there seemed to be nothing at all between themselves and the act, no shadow, I couldn't help feeling pity for them, but found their position humiliating as well. Now, older, I tend to be more reserved in my judgments. Yet, having encountered another way of waiting, similar in a way to pregnancy, I pity them less. Waiting, or rather having to wait for the result after all that could be done has been done, not passively, but in total impotence, is much different from what the three sisters had to go through. And as the period gets longer, the aggravation caused by it gets more intense. Worse than that is what I would call the throbbing impotent weight. To explain what I mean, I must use a metaphor I've used before. Imagine yourself riding on the subway and you'll be getting off at the next station. You get up, get in front of the sliding doors, maybe your hand on the handle, hear the stop announced over the PA, and wham, the train goes past the station without ever slowing down. You don't sit down. It's probably a mistake. It'll surely stop at the next station. And duly, the voice from the box 
confirms your belief. So you wait, and the next stop goes by, and this goes on and on. And every time the train skips a station, the voice announces something more reasonable and assures you it will stop at the next station. You don't sit down. You can't. You just stand there holding the handle, and you wait. It's been 32 months since we were first arrested, and never, never have we thought it would take this long. There has always been something or other, quote, in two months, unquote, when we were sure to be released. Now the case is before the highest tribunal, and in less than two months, they are certain to reach the final verdict. I wait. It's not for sympathy that I write this, but to introduce you to yet another kind of waiting that perhaps you haven't met. And this kind of waiting has become a way of life with me. I think of life, or rather the future, as a two-month-long slice that travels before me. It's always there, like a bunch of seaweed that gets somehow caught in the nose of a boat, or a hair stuck under the nib of a fountain pen, or a wart on your nose, the two months before I am released slice is constantly there to be waited upon. We generally think of time as stationary and ourselves as moving. A more philosophical way is to accept we change as time moves along. Subjective or objective, any way you look at it, a point in time either comes closer to you or is fading away. Ours is a case where time travels with us. Everything is in two months. It's been so for more than two and a half years. A hall of time mirrors. In the beginning, you believe the error will be corrected and make plans for after two months. Then comes a time you think you should forget about this two months nonsense and accept the full sentence of eight years and live with it. But the release in two months is still being called over the public address system. And then you relax into the, quote, negation of the negation, unquote, mode of both knowing it'll be, it'll still be out in two months, in two months, and thinking you'll be out in two months. Time for you is what space is for my blind bunkmate. And you start finding comfort in this last mode. You'll never be caught unawares. Every plan you've made about what you'll do in two months is perfected by constant thought, and richer and richer variants are created for backup. After all, it was me who always asked for more rehearsal time from producers. And here I have it, <laughs> an endless rehearsal. That's the end of the letter, but I should add, I think I owe it to them, that Turkey is the second largest recipient of United States military aid, second only to Israel. Got a poem for you this time. It's called, it's fallen down, thank you. I Will Live and Survive by Irina 
Ratushinskaya. I will live and survive and be asked how they slammed my head against a trestle, how I had to freeze at nights, how my hair started to turn gray. I will smile and crack some joke and brush away the encroaching shadow. And I will render homage to the dry September that became my second birth. And I'll be asked, doesn't it hurt you to remember? Not being deceived by my outward flippancy. But the former names will detonate in my memory, magnificent as old canon. And I will tell of the best people in all the earth, the most tender, but also the most invincible, how they said farewell, how they went to be tortured, how they waited for letters from their loved ones. And I'll be asked what helped us to live when there were neither letters nor any news, only walls and the cold of the cell and the blather of official lies and the sickening promises made in exchange for betrayal. And I will tell of the first beauty I saw in captivity, a frost-covered window. No doors, nor walls, nor cell bars, nor the long-enduring pain, only a blue radiance on a tiny pane of glass, a cast pattern None more beautiful could be dreamt. The more clearly you looked, the more powerfully dawned those brigand forests, campfires, and birds. And how many times there was bitter cold weather, and how many windows sparkled after that one, but never was it repeated, that upheaval of rainbow ice. And anyway, what good would it be to me now? And what would be the pretext for that festival? Such a gift can only be received once, and once is probably enough. My name is um, Toni Morrison. I'm reading from <clears throat> a work by Wally Soyenka, who was imprisoned um, for his vigorous, uh, sustained um, opposition to the military dictatorship in Nigeria in the 60s, and also because of his support of the uh, secession of Biafra in one of uh, that country's uh, wars, I think generally understood to have been called the Biafran War. I uh, like this selection particularly because the intimacy that I feel with the writer and the place comes because it has um, it's not self-centered uh, at this particular place in the book, although there are several other places in which he's concentrating on, his, on himself. But this was interesting because it is about 
others, although the voice is that of the imprisoned. The groans of anguish began just after supper time. They came from the direction of that wall which faces the entrance to my cell. The wall has two flood holes in it, both covered by iron grills. The mesh is large enough to permit a cat to pass through. From bits of fur, which are left clinging to it, I know always when he has used the passage in the night. Then he darts across the intervening space so bare and full of danger, vanishes behind the hut looking for scrap. A gutter runs through my domain just behind the hut. It links the yard of lunatics across the crypt to the compound for women. The gutter is the subterranean link of all the catacombs of Hades. Now there is a smell of death in the air. I can't mistake it. So I must think only of living things, shut out the stench in my nose, the supplication of skeletal hands on my impotence. We had a birth here some weeks ago. I heard a baby's cries and wondered, how could this be a baby in this hell? And it was evening, nearly the same time as the present intrusive groans began. It could hardly be a wife visiting her prisoner husband with a newborn child. Isn't it strange? I had heard the women's voices before, but thought they were children's. Several months passed before I knew that my crypt was placed between the yard of lunatics and that of women. Their voices are so thin, as if piped through a crevice in a distant cavern. They play childish games in the evenings from the sound and the giggle, they must be the kind of games children play. And those tunes which I had imagined came from without the prison, on a very quiet evening, I even made out some of the words. Brother Johnny, Brother Johnny, do you sleep? Do you sleep? Wedding bells are ringing, wedding bells are ringing. Ding, dong, ding. They sang in that listless, unmeaningful tone in which our school children sing foreign songs. The bluebells of Scotland, Ash Grove, the lass with her delicate air, which are forced upon the curriculum by unimaginative missionaries. The words are delivered flat even when such songs are accompanied by games. The words hold no meaning for them. The territory and sentiments are strange, and so this anemic rendering is all that the misguided music mistress can obtain from them. It must be this remembered quality which made me imagine for so long that the voices which I heard at song and play came from children playing in the outer world under the mango trees. That world lies beyond amber wall. The sun rises just behind it. A road runs along Amber Wall, not a busy one by the sounds, or perhaps it's simply that it runs so far from the wall that the sounds of vehicles seem muted. A certain amount of distortion does take place, especially in direction. 
What is certain is that there is a wide swathe between the wall and the road, and this space is occupied by a grove of mangoes whose tops are visible. I watch the buds appear, the efflorescence, and the first green eardrops on the branches. Fat swarms of blue bottles follow human marauders at the first sign of ripening, as all objects in the broad catalog of missiles hurtle toward the fruits. They land often in the crypt, and I hear the guards swear and throw some back. I don't mind. Even the danger of being brained by a chance missile in the mango season becomes a spice of ecstatic possibility that livens up the tedium. A painful crack on the head is a token of life, of vitality. No, I do not think I would have minded at all. I look up one morning, my early morning stroll just after opening hour, and there, right on the topmost branch, a territory hardly capable, I had always thought, of supporting more than the weight of the fruits, perched a little boy, reaching for the topmost mangoes. His head was higher than the crown of the tree itself. He swayed gently with the motion of the branch. I was certain that there was just that last bunch of mangoes on the tree. Often the crown of the tree would move, violently shaken by one or more marauders on the lower branches, but no one had dared climb this far before. His hand was on the goal when he looked down and encountered my gaze. He paused. We stared at each other. I smiled, but his response was one of complete bewilderment. Then he took his gaze away and looked over to the other side. I saw his alert mind racing and questioning, for he was now looking over into the teeming compound next to mine. The sun rose slowly behind him, too brilliant for me to sustain my gaze. I continued my stroll round the hut. When I came back, he was back to staring into the crypt. When I came round again, he was gone and the mangoes with him. When I heard the treble voices later that evening, I imagined him, among others of his age, playing games in the moonlight. For the first time, it conjured up, try as I would, to repress them, childhood memories, a parsonage filled with children. I made a final effort, and I shut down that scene violently. In its place, came the smell of flowers, a sunrise, the chill of a guitar, the wistful pagan ending of Cocteau's Orfe Negre, the dance of spring by the two children, heirs to the evocative magic of sunrise, of seed awakening in the soil beneath their tread of innocence. For unto us a child is born, it was the cry of a newborn, that child. It contained the distressing urgency that made up all its new world, a single-minded thrust of all the intensity of its tiny body. I heard a mother's crooning, and I was certain. Another female voice, querulous and petulant, joined in, and the scene became almost 
human, the voice of the common mother in all our women, offering anxious advice, taking the side of the child. But the voices remained muffled, and the women unreal. They were not beings of the sun, not like the throbbing mangoes up against the sunrise. Ghosts, sheer, weightless ghosts, drifting in caverns of mist. Within their netherworld, the child is a full-throated freak, a changeling. I reflect now, somewhat sadly, that the birth has come in the wrong season. It ought to be spring. Still, if it is a girl, we can ignore the timing and name her Persephone. Still no solace at the wailing wall and close to midnight. I shut my mind to the other sounds that began some two hours ago. Sounds that were soon bullied into silence. The other inmates, companions to the groaning man, had set up a cry for help. I heard hysterical voices screaming, Warder! Warder! It went unheeded for nearly 30 minutes. Then it was augmented by banging doors, windows, buckets. At least 30 voices were now screaming for help. And steadily below it all, in an unchanging tone and pace, as if his pain had sublimated itself into this last automated sound, the groan persisted. I heard the sound of running boots several heard the clang of iron gates as iron gates were swung open, heard the threats, the shouts, heard the determined response of demands, accusation, heard these shouted down, one long tread of authority approaching the bed of the ailing man. I heard him bend down and make an examination that told him nothing, heard the steps return, a babble of excited voices meant that he was leaving without saying what would be done, if anything would be done. I think I made out the repeated word, doctor. He shouted it down, flatly, angrily. The doors clanged to, the locks snapped their finality. The boots walked away. The murmurs of retreating guards were the protests of wrong men of men whose leisure had been needlessly broken. The groans do not cease, nor do they diminish. The bloodless, inhuman steadiness of this sound of human suffering is the most unnerving aspect of it all. It does not come from volition, but from the weak inertia of a muted pulse, as if the man has merely left his mouth open and the sound emerges with his breathing out. It's close to dawn when the sound stops. Abruptly, no weakening ever, neither faltering nor rallying intensity. I know it's over. My body is straining for the lightest sounds. One man has got up. He's gone near the silence to inquire. Others sit up in their beds. A few join the first by the bed. A minute later, 
I hear the murmuring of prayers. The prayers continue until the doors are open. A warder steps in, pauses. I have. I have here an anonymous poem which was smuggled out of a prison in Chile. It is quite an eerie conundrum. It's very, very brief. Uh, I will read it first in Spanish. The conundrum, the answer to the conundrum is all too evident for us South Americans, unfortunately. The title is Electra. Electra. Me desnudé nervioso con la misma zozobra de mis 18 años y me tendí en tu cama extraña. Cosa curiosa, ataron tu lecho a mis espaldas para que no me moviera. Inesperada, recorriste mi cuerpo induciéndome espasmos crueles. No, no haré más el amor contigo, mujer vulgar y corriente. Electra. Nervously I undressed with the same anguish of my 18 years and I lay on your strange bed. A curious thing, they tied your bed to my back so I wouldn't move. Unexpectedly, you went through my body, inducing cruel spasms. No, I won't make love with you again, you current slut. Uh, I'm going to read two poems by Jorge Valls, uh, who has spent 20 years in prison in uh, Cuba from 64 to 84. Let me at least outline my shadow on the floor. Down on all fours, moist-faced, wet with kisses, the grayness of the dust, and tear off sweaty stars like an acid juice squeezed from ripe stems. Pity the wretched of the earth who walk, conceived as poverty-stricken sons and flesh-colored pinks of love stories, all of them fruit of a whitewashed womb, mere finger sketches drawn in the ashes. Pity the strange animals, half iguana belly, pointed tail, frothy wings of doves with their bloodshot eyes pierced by bronze pins, burbling with unspillable tears of tar. Had I never got to this place, had I not marched along like a straw man, twisted by winds and shaken by the tolling of bells, man of straw, winnower of crows, sayer of sounds that found no throat, shivering in the rain and mocked in summer, grimace, come to live among men. The next time, if you should come, man of straw, first go out and find some fire. Only when you are burning, Will children be astonished and your heart of fire find the way out? If I told you that I love you, 
It would be like saying the lime of the walls or the smoke of diluted breaths. I need you, though I may not see you among so many bursting lemons turning ceaselessly in sour rings. You are needed by the contradiction of my marrows, the thirsty clams within my face, my time annihilated by the shadows. I don't know how. It occurs to me like a log occurs to the sap, and at the same time to its own wood, and to its life's calling, and to the fire itself that bites and worries it again. To need, more than all things utterable, from the coiled ribbing of being silent, from the inferno in the heart of uranium, from the burning of the sore or the hardness of the tooth that crushes the tame and lamb-like whiteness of bread, from the brain and the bronchial matter, soiled by soot raining down substance while your purple grapes are squeezed. I know I am hurting you, hurting you down to the last destiny of the nail. Yet I ask you, take me in, put me together with the things essential to you. Three letters from South Korean prisons. Kim Nam Ju, April 5th, 1986. Today I fought with the officer of the instruction branch, demanding the right to read books. Here in prison, most books are forbidden. Even the novels dealing with Korean independence movements during the Japanese occupation are not allowed. I cannot put up with it. They inspect all the books scrupulously, as if in search of something valuable. If they happen to find something suspicious, they hide, erase, or tear it without a moment's hesitation. They tend to be shocked at all kinds of words, such as freedom, liberation, people, reunification, labor, democracy, etc. It is most troublesome and disagreeable to quarrel over petty things, regardless of the results. But in prison, we are forced to struggle even for trivialities, which makes me feel narrow-minded. Without struggle, we are not allowed even to read a book freely. The case is the same with getting pen and paper. In a civilized society, pen and paper, like spoon and fork, is indispensable. But in this country, the prisoners, especially the political prisoners, are not permitted to write. I have kept on asking the head of the prison, give a pen. Once I suggested that they allow me a pen and paper an hour a day instead of a meal. I told them that their refusal was unprecedented. Even in the ancient slavery society, a Roman philosopher called Bothius wrote a famous book, The Constellation of Philosophy, in prison. The Russian revolutionary democrat Chernyshevsky, imprisoned for criticizing Tsarism, did write an influential novel, What is to be Done? And Nehru, who fought against the imperialism, wrote World History in Prison. But it is impossible here even to imagine such things. Pen and paper is to the mind what food is to the body. It is absolutely inhuman to deprive the political prisoners of the right to write. Give a pen to a poet. Even if I should die for this, I would not give up the struggle for pen. Even if I should starve to death, I would do everything to secure freedom of expression. Kim Hyun Jang, May 25, 1988. I am so sorry that I, the eldest son, cannot even go to the funeral of my mother. 
When I think of her, I feel an irresistible longing. Nothing can fill the void made by her death. How can an undutiful son like me be called a man? I must have been the cause of her ailment, which at last made her die of cancer. I always remember her being simple and honest, in spite of all the hardships she suffered supporting seven children. I was told she had kept on calling my name so painfully in the last moments of her life, but I could not even close the eyes of her, which might have been full of woe. When through my prison window, I catch sight of the yellow barley fields and the farmers transporting young rice plants, my heart runs to my home village where my mother lies now and tears stand in my eyes. The empty garden of my house will be full of weeds and there will be no smoke which used to rise when my mother cooked. Though all I did is trying to add a very small stone to the works of many great men, I have been forced to suffer such pain. So how self-sacrificing they must be. Lee Tae Bok to his brother, July 29th, 1982. Did I hear a miss? No, I heard it very clearly. It's from behind the wall. I'll wait a moment. The iron bars felt so cold. Taking a deep breath, I rubbed my hands. It's damn quiet. It was overwhelming, the suffocating silence only broken by the discordant noise of cars from afar. Suddenly a flapping sound came through the thick air. There, in the shadow, behind the mercury lamp, at the eaves trough, oh God, heading down headlong with a string around the leg, a runaway dove. She must have refused to be tamed. After all the trouble she took to escape, she ended up being caught in this cul-de-sac. I wish I had not seen your desperate effort. All right, dove. I'll be with you at your last moment. Just then, the string began to swing to and fro very slowly. One, two, three. I kept on counting 400, 400 times exactly. Look, those desperate flappings again, far feebler this time. When I counted over 300, there came thunder and lightning as if the sky were to be splitted. It began to pour. She'll be drenched to the skin. Now the dove could not stir at all. The raindrops began to drift into my ward. At last, I sank down and leaned against the wall, for I could not bear it anymore. It was just then that a miracle happened. At the sound of flapping, I looked out of the bars, and the dove soars high. The rain had helped her to escape from the trough. What a blessed relief. You've come to life again. Thank you all.